0: Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. Thank you that we can meet together this morning, that we can sing to you and now hear from your word. Father, please speak to us. Please be present by the power of your spirit so that we might better enjoy and appreciate Christ who came for us. Father, we pray all this in His name. Amen. Uh, Govert Flink was a Dutch painter. He looks like a painter, doesn't he? I love his moustache. He's a bit artsy. Uh, Born in January 25th, 1615, Flink began life in Brandenburg, Germany, and he eventually became a student of the well-known Rembrandt, and he was then eventually a painter of biblical and allegorical subjects. At age 24, Flint painted this: Angels announcing the birth of Christ to the shepherds." You see, around this time, so many people were painting pictures of the coming of Christ, and this is just one of them. And as you can see, Flint's artwork, it says something about the collision of worlds. The world of the shepherds, you'll notice, is dark, but the world of the heavenly beings, is filled with light. It's a picture of how, as one person puts it, the light of heaven began to bleed into the darkness of this world. It's a cool painting. But what would cause someone to paint this? What would cause Flink to paint this? Why would you paint a world so dark? Why would you suggest that light needed to enter it? Today, and for the next few weeks, we're going to be thinking about the coming of Christ. We're going to be going through key texts of Scripture to pave the way for the coming of Jesus, of this collision of worlds, of light entering the darkness. And today, we're just going to look at Genesis chapter 3. It's a familiar passage, you'll all know the story, but it's a really rich passage because it shows us why the Son of God took on flesh. And it's my prayer this morning that God would fill you, that He'd fill us with joy. He'd fill us with joy as we hear about the wonderful reality that Christ came to save us from the depths of sin, to save us from its consequences, and to save us from its protagonist. So this morning I want you to have your Bibles open and let's dive in. In the first six verses of Genesis 3 we're reminded about the depths of sin. We hear again and again, basically, how sin begins. And sin, well, it begins by listening to talking snakes, doesn't it? Or the less fun title, Sin Begins by Unbelief. In verse 1, we hear that a woman meets a skillful serpent. And unlike our English translations, the narrator actually doesn't describe the, the serpent as kind of in an evil sense. He's more neutral. He's not a crafty serpent, as our translations often say, but he's a skillful serpent. He's a wise serpent. He's a sagacious serpent. Don't worry, I had to look that one up. Sagacious. Uh, Gatius, uh, someone who has or shows keen mental discernment and good judgment, wise or shrewd. You see, the serpent's like the shrewd manager in the Gospels. He's a wise serpent. See, upon first glance, when we look at the serpent, he's kind of just a good creature in God's good creation. But then he speaks, doesn't he? And that's when it becomes problematic. The utter foolishness of God's people is on display, when they listen. The serpent says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Despite being in charge, God's people are getting theological advice from an animal. It's kind of silly, isn't it? And whilst this seems like a harmless theological discussion, in reality, you'll notice the serpent twists God's words. Notice how he emphasises the prohibition, instead of God's provision. He says, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? When God actually said, back in Genesis 2, you're free, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. You see, the serpent is distorting the woman's view of God, he's tempting her into unbelief. Instead of believing that God is good, He's tempting her to believe that God is restrictive, that God is enslaving, that He's one who deprives His people of good things. That's how all sin begins, doesn't it? Your sin, my sin, the world's sin, it begins with the serpent, it begins with any other voice calling into question God's goodness. It begins with people, platforms, accounts, feelings, tempting us into unbelief. Has God really said you can't have that? You're kidding, right? Has God really said? Ultimately, sin begins by unbelief. It's by listening to talking snakes. Number two, sin begins by forgetting God's Word. In verses 2 to 3, the woman then responds to the servant, doesn't she? And in her response, it's clear that she's forgotten God's Word. And we see that because she removes her privileges, adds to the prohibition, and minimises the threat. Just follow along with me. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God said, you can eat from any tree in the garden. But here, in verse 2, the woman says, we may eat from the trees. In the garden. In Genesis chapter 2, 16, God says, you may not eat from the tree. But the woman says, in verse 3, we must not touch the tree. Then, in chapter 2, verse 16, God says, if you eat from the tree, you'll surely die. But the woman says, you will die. Do you know what's going on? Small emissions, small additions. The woman has gotten God's Word wrong. Either the man who was to receive God's Word failed to pass it on correctly, probably what happened, or the woman has forgotten herself. The point is God's people forget God's good, gracious, pleasing, life-giving Word. Sin begins by not having God's Word not knowing God's Word, not remembering what God wants for us and doesn't want for us. Sin begins with forgetting God's Word. And then sin begins with pride. In verses 4 to 5, the serpent quickly responds to the woman's reply by lying to her face. He lies by removing the fear of judgment. He says, you will not, sh- you will not certainly die. And then, after that, he lies about what will happen after they eat. He speaks as if the fruit will somehow make them like God, knowing good and evil. And somehow, because of that, God won't put them to death. You see, the serpent lies. But the problem is, the woman likes the sound of that. The woman becomes focused on the possibility that by eating the fruit, she could be like God. She becomes proud. And ironically she forgets who she is. She forgets who she is. Remember, God has already told the man and the woman that He has made them in His image. In chapter 2, God says that they are already like Him. They don't need to eat fruit. And remember, God has already told the man and woman what is good and what is evil. They know That it is good not to eat the fruit and they know that it is evil to eat the fruit. The man and the woman already have a knowledge of good and evil. You see, the serpent is this slimy, slippery spinner of yarns but the man and the woman have become proud. You see, sin always begins with an inflated self-view a view of ourselves, that we can be on an equal footing with anyone, even God. Sin begins with pride. Sin begins with selfishness. At the beginning of verse 6, the woman decides to listen to the serpent and to disobey God's Word. Notice, the woman decides, verse 6, it says, when the woman saw. The woman saw. The point is that sin begins with selfishness. It begins when we, man or woman, decide on ourselves. We will put ourselves first. Sin begins when we seek our best interest over obedience to God's command. And then notice sin begins with wrong desire. Again, in the second part of verse 6, we see that the woman trusts her senses. She's led by her head, led by her heart and led by her eyes. Notice she's led by her head. She sees the fruit of the tree and she, and she considers it to be good to eat. God has said that it's not. And so she's making up her own moral order. She's deciding what's good, not God. Then the woman is led by her eyes. The fruit of the tree, notice, is pleasing to the eye. Even when God has given her an entire garden, to enjoy. And then the woman is led by her heart. She longs to have wisdom. She longs to have competence in life from a created thing. She desires creation over the Creator. The woman is led by wrong desire. You see, sin begins when we're led by our heart, minds and sight. Sin begins with wrong desire. Then in verse 6, it keeps going, doesn't it? Sin begins with rebellion. Later in verse 6, the man, well, he finally arrives on the scene. Classic, always coming in late. But turns out, he's been there all along. We hear that the woman took some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. On one level, you can see that this so-called helper has become a hindrance. But on another level, and a more serious level, the man is in rebellion against God. Instead of obeying God, the man has obeyed his wife. The one who was made the under-king, the one who would rule over creation, has now rebelled against God, the King of kings. Sin begins with The rejection of God as king. It is the constant singing of the tune, I don't care, I love it. (laughs) Sin begins when we say, I don't care, I love it. You see, these first six verses remind us about the depths of sin, don't they? Sin begins with unbelief, listening to talking snakes. It begins with forgetting God's Word. It begins with pride, selfishness, wrong desire and rebellion. I hope you can see that sin is a dark, complex, slithery and yet profoundly human problem. It's a power affecting us from the outside. It's a power which resides within us and it's a power which leads to actual sins. Some as basic as eating something we're not meant to eat. We're all under the power of sin. In the movie uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, Edmund, you know Edmund, his descent into the witch's service begins during his frantic consumption of magic Turkish delight. Similar to the story of Genesis 3, Edmund sees, Edmund takes, Edmund eats. But what Edmund doesn't realise is that his one bite of Turkish delight forfeits his entire allegiance to that dark witch. He's under the power of the witch. And in a similar way, you and I, we've all had our share of Turkish delight, haven't we? We've all given our allegiance to the powers of sin. We sin, we see, we take, we eat. We see, we take, we eat and then we repeat. In the New Testament we hear about this allegiance to the power of sin. The Apostle Paul declares in Romans 3, all are under the power of sin. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, there's no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they've become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are an open grave, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, Paul's point, and I think Genesis's point, outside of Christ, we are sinners who sin. Every bit of us has been affected by sin. There's no element or part of the human person, body, soul, mind, will, emotions, desires, heart, that has not been affected by sin. There's no part of us which has its original capacity and ability to do anything pleasing to God or to genuinely fulfil God's desire. You see, we're not just broken. We're not just sick. We're not just a little bit bad. No, outside of Christ, to put it frankly, we are bastards. Dead in sin, slaves to its power. But that's what's so good about Christmas, isn't it? You see, at Christmas, we celebrate that wonderful reality that Christ came for sin and for sinners. The Apostle Paul declares to Timothy, and we know it so well, don't we, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You see, Genesis 3, it shows us the depths of sin, but it shows us our glorious Saviour, and it shows us what he came for. But you know, Genesis 3, sad to say, things kind of get worse. Genesis 3 shows us more than that. It shows us that sin also has consequences. Sin has consequences. See, back to the story of Edmund, Edmund's date with a Turkish delight, well, we see all manner of implications break out in the movie, don't we? You see Edmund, you see that he slowly becomes isolated from his family, uh, he's then really cruel to his little sister Lucy uh, and his heart, well his heart becomes cold and, and, and then he puts all of Nadia in danger. I mean, it's a reminder that there are consequences to sin and they don't come in short supply. We're going to move a bit quicker here And you're going to see that there's about, I reckon, well, there's maybe more, but there's 10 consequences to sin. First, sin leads to shame. Immediately after the woman, uh, man and the woman fall prey to the serpent's schemes, they realise their guilt and they attempt to cover themselves up. In verse 7, their eyes are open, they realise they're naked, so they sow fig leaves to make coverings for themselves. You see, this couple who were once unashamed and naked, they now feel defenceless, weak and humiliated. Reminder that sin leads to shame. Second, sin leads to fear of God. In verse eight to ten, the woman and uh, the man and the woman, well, they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the cool of the in the garden in the cool of the day, and will know that they hide. Uh, the phrase here, the cool of the day, you'll see, it, there might be a little footnote at the bottom of your Bibles. It literally means the wind of the day. Now, I want you to know that God, He's not taking a leisurely stroll in the garden in the afternoon after the fact that His first humans have just stuffed up. That is not what God is doing. No, God, He's moving in a windstorm. He's moving in judgment. You see, wind in the Old Testament is a picture of God's divine judgment where He'll judge His people. And consequently, His people are afraid. His people hide. You see, sin leads to fear of God. Sin then leads to judgment, doesn't it? In verse 11 to 13, the man and the woman, well, they play the blame game. They shift the blame away from themselves. The man, well, he first blames God. The woman you put here with me. And then the the man blames the woman. She gave me some fruit. And then the man, classic, concludes, oh, and I ate. It's the same for the woman. The woman blames the serpent. The serpent, he deceived me. And then she concludes, oh, and I ate. You see, this blame game is a picture of God's judgment. Whether we get it right or wrong, the man and the woman, they have to give an account before God. They have to stand up before Him and give an account for what they've done. Sin leads to judgment. Fourth, sin leads to conflict. In verse 15, God judges the serpent. And the Lord declares, I'll put conflict between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He'll crush your head and you'll strike his heel. Sin leads to to conflict with this evil power, not only for the serpent, but also for the woman. One will be stepped on, the other will be bitten. They'll attack each other. Sin leads to conflict. Sin leads to pain. In verse 16, the woman's life is frustrated. Making children will become frustrating and painful. It's not how it's meant to be. Sin leads to broken relationships. Later in verse 16, the woman's relationship with her husband is also frustrated. Sin then leads to fruitlessness. In verse 17 to 18, the Lord curses the ground because of the man. Cursed is the ground because of you. It'll produce thorns and thistles. point is that sin reverses God's fruitful creation. Things which were meant to be fruitful become fruitless. Sin leads to death. Not only will the man have to work the ground endlessly, he'll have to go to work every day and probably hate his job, but he'll return to the ground at death. By the sweat of your brow you'll eat, for f- eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are and to dust you will return. Sin leads to death. Humans deteriorate and decay because of sin's power. Night, no, sin leads to bestial qualities. In verse 21, the man and the woman are clothed in animal skins. Now, on one level, we might read this and say that God's kind of protecting them. Or maybe it's a perpetual reminder that instead of being like God, they're now more like animals. Maybe now they're like the animals which surround them, Instead of being in the image of God, they're in the image of animals. They've lost their glory. It's a reminder that sin in all of us makes us become a little less human. And finally, 10, sin leads to exile. In verses 23 to 24, God decides that He cannot keep the man and the woman in the garden. They were once like God, knowing good and evil, but now they're not like God, so they can't stay. Because of their sin, they can't go in. And so the Lord banishes the man from the Garden of Eden. He drives them out. You see, the point is that exile now defines the man and the woman. They are a driven out people. They are a homeless people. They are people... In isolation, You see, these verses remind us about the consequences of sin. And there's a lot, aren't there? It's kind of overwhelming. Sin brings shame, fear, judgment, conflict, pain, broken relationships, fruitlessness, death, bestial qualities and exile. So you see, sin, just do, it, it, sin doesn't just affect one or two things. Sin affects lots of things. It affects what it means to be human. It affects our relationships with God. It affects our relationships with each other. It affects our sense of safety. It affects the environment we live in. It affects our work and our family. It affects affects our sense of direction and belonging. It affects our beginning and our end. Outside of Christ, we are sinners who sin and who exist within a sinful world. But again, I love this kind of cheeriness at the end of each point. That's what's so good about Christmas. We celebrate the reality that Christ came for sin and its consequences. In Christ, the effects of sin are being reversed. He bears our shame. He brings peace with God. He takes judgment for us. He will end pain. He will end fractured relationships. He will end all fruitlessness. He has conquered death and He has restored our glory and He will lead us home to a better garden. Genesis 3 reminds us that there are consequences for sin and that Christ came to reverse them. Back to Narnia. In the final battle scene of Narnia, the witch is killed by Aslan, that crazy big lion. It's one thing for Edmund to be restored, right? And it's another thing for his consequences to be kind of forgiven But really, it wouldn't be enough if the protagonist didn't meet her end. It's the same in Genesis 3. The real problem in Genesis 3 and in our world is not just sin and its consequences, but it's that slimy serpent, sin's protagonist, sin's leading actor. You see, in every movie that you watch, there are multiple actors doing all sorts of things. They're all acting, but some have bigger roles, more leading roles than others. It's the same here. If we read Genesis 3 for what it is, this serpent is the lead actor. He's the problem behind the problem, but God promises to deal with him. In Genesis 3.15, if we go back up into the passage, God promises to deal with sin's protagonist by putting conflict between the serpent and the woman. One will crush his, uh, will crush his head, the other will uh, be bitten on the heel. Now, in his article entitled, The Skull-Crushing Seed of the Woman, this guy named James Hamilton, he does a study in the Old Testament on Genesis 3.15 and even the New Testament. And what he does is he follows words such as skull, crush, foot, heel, and he follows themes such as seed and offspring. And his point in the article is that the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman are in conflict. They're just again and again and again. And I'm going to give you a few examples. Not long after Genesis 3, you go to the next chapter, we see the first conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Eve's firstborn son, Cain, well, he's eaten up by sin. He's devoured by the powers of sin. If you go to the next book of the Bible, in, the, in Exodus, the conflict continues. Pharaoh, who kind of represents this godlike figure and force of sin, attempts to destroy the male offspring of Israel. Then, in the book of Numbers, the people of Moab are spoken of in similar ways to the serpent. Moab are those who oppose God's people, Israel, and the Lord declares that a ruler will come and, Numbers 24, 17, crush the foreheads of Moab, Moab and the skulls of all the people of Sheth. In the book of Judges, once again, the collective seed of the woman, Israel, is in conflict with another seed, the Canaanites. And the Lord delivers His people through a woman named Jael. I love this story because Jael crushes the head of a Canaanite general with a hammer and a tent peg. He crushes his skull. In 1 Samuel 17, the conflict continues. Goliath, remember big Goliath who is pictured, well, he's pictured as a serpent with his scaled bronze coat of armour. And he faces off with God's anointed seed, David. And David, remember, he slings a stone at Goliath, which strikes him in the head. His head is crushed. Again, in two Samuel twenty-two, David shouts over his enemies in ways that echo Genesis three fifteen. He declares, "I beat them with fine as I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I crush them and stamp them down like the mire of the streets." Then even in the prophets, the Lord is pictured as one who judges His enemies by standing on their heads, trampling on His enemies underfoot and stepping on their throats. Psalm 68, Psalm 110, our God is a God of salvation and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death but God will strike the heads of His enemies. Or again in the book of the 12, in Micah 7.17, God's enemies are pictured as those who will lick and eat the dust of the earth like a serpent. The nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. You see, in the Old Testament, this, con- this conflict continues and continues and continues. And it continues even into the pages of the New Testament. Remember at the end of uh, chapter 3 in Luke's gospel Luke writes that Jesus Christ is from the line of Adam. He's the son of Adam, the son of God. In some sense Jesus is presented as the woman's seed. And it's no wonder then after that genealogy Matthew sh- Luke shows us Jesus conflict with Satan. Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan in a similar way to Genesis 3. Or if you look at Matthew's Gospel, the newly born Jesus is in conflict, again, with more powerful figures of evil. He's in conflict with King Herod, who wants to put him to death. Or, later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus calls out the Pharisees. He calls them, the Pharisees, a brood of vipers because they seek to kill him. Then in John's Gospel, Jesus says that the Pharisees do the works of their father, the devil. Jesus is in conflict with the powers of evil. And then throughout the Gospels, and we see it so much that Jesus is in conflict with the demonic, Satan hardens the hearts of those who hear Jesus' words, and Satan even causes one of his disciples, one of Jesus' disciples, to betray him. And then, of course, this conflict is seen when Jesus goes to the cross, when things become dark and this conflict, well, we know that it will be ended on Christ's return. In Romans 16, Paul declares, the grace of peace will soon crush, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The point is, Genesis 3 looks forward to the end of sin's protagonist, the serpent it reminds us of the wonderful reality that Christ came to deal with the problem behind the problem. Jesus Christ came to make conflict with the evil one. He came to skull bash Satan. For our sake. John declares, the reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. to Flink's painting. It's one which makes sense when we come to the pages of Genesis 3, doesn't it? He painted our world as one of darkness because of the depths of sin, because of its consequences and because of sin's protagonist. To varying degrees, Flink saw that our world needed to come into collision with Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this Christmas, be filled with joy. Be filled with smiles. Be filled with thankfulness. Celebrate, proclaim and rejoice over this truth that the Son of God took on flesh for our salvation. He became one with us so that we might be released from sin's grip and Satan's rule. He came to defeat the powers of sin and we find salvation in Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for the coming of Christ. Thank You that He came to make conflict with the conflict-causer. Thank You that He took on flesh for us. Father, this Christmas give us great joy These next few weeks at church, give us great thankfulness as we hear again and again of the wonderful reality that your plan was to send your Son to defeat the powers of sin and darkness which rage against us and our world. Father, do this by the power of your Spirit, we pray. Amen.